Hello, welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast. My name is Natalie Ray. I'm the Development Director for Burning Coal in for Jerome Davis, our Artistic Director. Today, we have a very special episode. It is a 25th anniversary reunion episode. So we all have um, to welcome these wonderful people who have joined us. Uh, who have been with Burning Coal since the very beginning. I'm going to introduce them one by one. First, we have David Henderson. David, what was your first Burning Coal production? It was the very first production, Rat in the Skull. Wonderful, yeah. Uh, So the Rat in the Skull was a a while ago. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. Why did you choose to get involved in Rat in the Skull? I don't know. Uh, no, I had met Jerry uh, before and he had mentioned uh, something about it. And I, I remember showing up to audition. I had no idea what the show was. I mean, I, I knew a little bit about it, but not enough. And I auditioned and ended up in it. And that's really, that's how it all happened. It just was, uh, I was a new company in town. And at the time there weren't very many companies in town, let alone a company that was willing to pay you as an actor. Hmm. So dive in while you can and it was a small show and that appealed to me great uh and then we have uh beth do you go by beth or elizabeth i go by both (laughs) officially i'm elizabeth but (laughs) people know me call me Beth. (laughs) we have elizabeth london um elizabeth what was your first production at burning coal uh, well, I, I'm a newbie compared to David because I was oh. in the second production, which was Love's Labor's Lost. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and, and how did you, did you just also decide to audition on a whim? Well, I primarily live in New York and I had been working with the director of that show, Rebecca Henderson, who's done a lot of work with Burning Coal also. And um, because I'd been working with her at the time, she knew Jerry from before and he asked her to direct the show. So she asked me to audition and uh, that's how it started. Wonderful. And it just kept going after that. It kept going after that. Yeah. And uh, it's like a home away from home is how I feel about burning coal coming down. It's lovely. Always lovely. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And lastly, we have Kate. Kate Day is one of our current board members. But how did you first get involved with burning coal? Well, a long time ago, uh, Simi and I worked at the same technology company. Uh, and it was based out in California. And we happened to run into each other 26 years ago, I guess. And they had moved out to North Carolina, which is where I live right now. And she mentioned to me about a new company, that uh, a theater company that she and Jerry wanted to start. So actually, I'm a little bit older than David and Elizabeth because I hosted the very first fundraiser for Burning Coal in my living room in Raleigh. And wow. so, wow. yeah, <laughs> and I, I still remember that because I had a big banner that uh, Jerry had printed up and the neighbors were like, what is a burning coal? 
I said, oh, you, you, should, you should pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, that, and that's how it happened. So I, w- I was one of the founding board members way back when, and then uh, took a break uh, to raise a family and, and work. And now I'm back again. Wow. Can I interrupt for a second? Because I just have to yeah. say, I have a semi-connection also that makes Burning Coal feel especially special, which is what I realized when I first went down, that my family's uh, dear, dear friends, who I called aunt and uncle, uh, Simi knew that family and found out that I was doing a show, that first show I did in Raleigh, because Simi's mother ran into our friend's mother uh, at the grocery store. And she said, what's she doing? Oh, Simi started this theater company in Raleigh. Oh my gosh, Beth is down there doing a show. And we found out it was the same company. And now that family friend's next generation. So her son and his sadly just um, late wife uh, live in Durham because he teaches at Duke. And they started to come see me in Burning Coal shows and became subscribers and great supporters. So there's this connection um, where the very small world of a very funny story of how Simi knew that family just felt so warm. And and I love those small world stories, which is what makes Burning Coal so special in so many ways. Yeah, it's that sort of grassroots coming up from that inside. Um, That's wonderful that everybody knows Simi. (laughs) David, do you have a Simi story as well? (laughs) I have many, but none like that. None that that connect other uh, other than seeing Simi and knowing Simi for 26 years. (laughs) Well, I'd like us to to take it back then. David, you had mentioned um, that there was not a lot of paid work going on around for actors 25 years ago. Paint the scene for us. What was it like here in the Triangle area for theater artists? I think jokingly, I could say back 26 years ago, you could count the number of theater companies on one hand. And now I think at last count, pre-pandemic, let's be honest, uh, there were upwards of 60 to 80 companies, depending on who was, you know, some consistently producing, some inconsistently producing, but a lot of companies. So it was, it was a time, a ripe time for something like Jerry and Simi were able to do, which was bring in a company and say, here's what we're committed to. Here's where we're going. We have a plan. This is where we're going to be in 25 years. Damn it, if they're not there, right? And, and pay the artists, pay the actors that are coming to work there. And I think a lot of actors around had been kind of chomping at the bit, looking for opportunities to be for paid work, because at the time it was kind of hard to find paid work consistently. Well, and I think David, on top of that, because we had moved from California to Raleigh mm-hmm. uh, a few years prior, and uh, your point's well taken. I think the area was just ripe for some new theater groups to come into town. And I will tell you, when we <laughs> were looking at the Raleigh area, and I went to a restaurant and I said, hi, can I have a cappuccino? And the uh, waitress said, a cap of what? And yeah. I said, never mind, just make it cop, you know, just cup black coffee is fine. But my point is, is that at that point, there's so many people moving in from other areas around the U.S. that it really was an exciting time to try something new. And I think that's, I, I think the timing couldn't have been better. for. Yeah, for I think it was cold. ideal. You yeah. are correct. You're right. correct. So Elizabeth, as someone who's more based in New York, was that your first time performing in North Carolina when you did Love's Labors? Um, 
Yes, I think so. I, I did a show with the North Carolina Shakespeare Festival also, and I think that was after. I could be wrong, but I did a Christmas Carol with them one year. But um, it's funny when you're talking about the timing of it, because as someone who came from New York, you know, going to Raleigh, it's a little bit less pressure. It feels a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, more relaxing. But at the same time, it felt like a completely welcoming arts community. So I remember at that time being surprised by how sort of progressive the area felt and how much art there was. And, you know, even over the years, I saw that downtown district build up even more. But it really felt like this was a hub for artistic creative work that I hadn't expected and that I was so surprised and pleased by. So it's interesting that it happened just at that time. and. You know, I didn't know anything else. Yeah, that is. And I, and I and I think we're poised for a second renaissance. Mm. No, no pun intended coming out of, you know, uh, what we've come out of. But but I think as 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 what we've seen, larger, larger theater centers in the country suffered a lot uh, during the last 16 months. And a lot of those people have found homes in other locations. And I think we are finding more and more people that are moving here and want a quality of life that may not be the same as someone in New York, right? So I think we're we're primed again for the next wave of truly regional theater and maybe more of a model like they have in the UK, uh, which would be great, um, in my you know, opinion. But David, I think the other opportunity that COVID forced us all to reckon with was dealing with virtual. How do, how do you take that visceral experience yeah. and make it digital. And what I thought was really interesting is that, you know, I think back when we started in the little black box, right? At NC State oh, yeah. For, yeah. For, for Rat in the Skull. And here we are now, right? And we're having this podcast via, via Zoom, how far technology has come. So in effect, I think the pandemic has forced us to rethink, how do we reach out to audiences mm -hmm. beyond our our physical area and in fact and i know natalie you've been involved with that but we have had um attendees from across the country yeah. as part of burning coal and i think that represents an opportunity for everyone will that replace live theater absolutely not but this isn't bad in terms of outreach either if you can't travel right i think that the, and what's interesting to me is uh, producing stuff on my own during this period of time uh, or dealing with uh, licensing in, in, entities during this time. It's interesting how slow they were to come around to this and, and some of the unions, let's be, be honest, uh, in, in, in saying, hey, e equity really put the kibosh on some people who wanted to work. So SAG stepped in and said, hey, Beth, you can go do this streamed project under this contract. And, and we, we were dealing, and I think they're just now catching up. Like us as the artists, it's like, gentrifying a neighborhood right we move in first and we get it right and then the people with all the money come in and go okay now we figured it out and i think that's what licensing agencies have done is they're like oh this is how we can monetize this but to your point i, I believe it, it offered access to audience members not just outside of our area but even in our area that may not have the ability to get to the theater at times but i also think it also heightened the other things we learned during this period of time were, you know, based on the privilege that we have to, to use a word that gets bandied around a lot is how do we come out of this and continue that outreach into communities that aren't necessarily coming into the ocean. Mm -hmm. right, that was probably tangential, Natalie. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Uh, so Kate mentioned um, one of our, the words in our mission statement, right? Uh, the mission is literate, visceral, affecting theater. 
that is experienced, not simply seen. Uh, so I'd love to hear um, a little bit about how that first season was meeting that mission um, and maybe how, you know, what, what are some other subsequent productions that you've seen that, that you thought worked within that mission? Uh, Kate, do you want to start us off? Well, um, well, I, hate, I know we keep coming back to Rat in the Skull, but I just remember <laughs> sitting in the theater after the production and just I just sat there and I said, oh, my gosh, what did I just experience? Right. And because uh, it was it was a very intense theater experience. Uh, and for some reason, I, that has always stuck with me. And I'm sure, David, you have some great examples or Elizabeth of other productions you've been in and I've not never been in a production per se right so I'm just behind the scenes but I just remember after the lights went down uh I never forgot that and that was really thought-provoking and visceral at least to me is there a specific element that you still think of in that show that really brought it home to you I I think it was uh, David it was in the black box right so it was a small it was, yeah mm -hmm. how many people were in the audience like 25 or 30 yeah small small house yeah it was a very small house. So it was a very intimate experience, Natalie. And, um, and the subject matter was, was, was pretty raw. It was about Northern Ireland and um, the, the troubles going on there. And uh, I just, and the lighting, there was nothing, right? It was a black box. So there was no scenery. It was just all lighting and all the actors. And that alone created a certain kind of electric experience, uh, I think, for the theater goer. So that's, that's where I remember the production of it, if that makes sense, and the content. Yeah, definitely. Um, David, anything you want to add to that? <laughs> well, I'll just say that I think one of the things that made the, that first season and the first, the subsequent season so successful was necessity is the mother of invention, right? And when you're a nomadic theater organization and you're going into a space and creating a theater every time, whether it be a black box, but it's not your own, or it be St. Mary's, you know, Beth, where we did, and, and, and bringing in directors that can use the entire space in a way. I think if you look at our production of Love's Labors, uh, Randy Rand, who I, I still, I love dearly, laid on the top of a balcony in a way that frightened me every night. Like he, and he's a very tall, long human <laughs> being. Um, but I think that that kind of use of an entire space, like the architecture of the space and filling it, not just with actors, but filling it with the story itself is really what I think that first season re did and challenged audiences in a way that a lot of people are so used to, you know, up, oh, I'm watching the, it's like now we're watching the three by five zoom card. Right. And, and it's safe. We, we took safety away. Now the audience was safe, but we, but we took it out to them in a way that I don't think, had been done in a long time. Mm. I do, I remember so clearly the work that was done on the balconies also, because we had like mm -hmm. the choir, there were girls singing up there. Oh, and, yeah, you know, yeah. so it happened all around you for an audience. And maybe I was a little more used to that with uh, that particular director in New York, but to know that that might have been the first time some of this audience was experiencing theater like that, that's when you realize how affecting it is and how bringing you in, as David said, physically bringing you into that space to have it happen right in front of you and right around you really does change the way you are affected, even if it's not that small black box that Kate mentioned, but you are affected that closely. 
But I want to make a point also that in subsequent years, and it's not even necessarily productions I always saw, but that I heard of or read about or just was, were described to me is Jerry is also, besides loving the very challenging, like the, the UK and Irish theater, which he's always really liked from the beginning, very dark subject matter. He's really had a scope that is Shakespearean, even if it's not a Shakespeare play. He really likes mm -hmm. to look at work that is political and philosophical and large. And I think of even the Pentecost, you know, he did mm -hmm. the, the David Edgar trilogy. And that's something that is so challenging and such a big number of people on stage and such a really deep, dark material to dive into and to expose an audience to all three of those plays in that series and then take it abroad as well. I think there's something really beautiful about the challenge that Jerry has, I think, given himself for the theater is to make it not only totally intimate, but also really deep and expansive. That's a great point, because I think when we did Pentecost the first time uh, before they did it to do mm -hmm. part of the trilogy, right. we did it in um, at the Achievement School in their gymnasium. And we built this. They built the set in there and they they framed it out in like plastic. So basically they built a greenhouse um, and it was hot. And it was intense and it was long. I'll never forget the night like Randy walks on stage at the first time, the first line of the show is this is it or is this it or something like that. And someone vomited, literally vomited from the top row. <gasps> oh, Jerry, get Jerry to tell that story. I mean, we're all, we're there. You can't do anything about it. But the house manager <laughs> flies into action, you know? Um, but we, but it's that necessity, right? It's like Beth says is, is you take this grand scope and you put it in whatever space you have it, it, and it expands to fill it in a way that creates this tension that I think is what we all want as actors. Is that, and I know Jerry also, doing that on, I'm sorry, no, that's oh, like, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm doing all these you. motions that people can't see me doing them on, you know, because <laughs> audio only. Um, but we're seeing David's passion. So that's why he's such a good actor. You can see the passion in his body as he's talking. Um, but Jerry also does a lot of local work or local stories. And I have yeah. always admired that and really thought that's wonderful as a way of engaging the community, but also bringing your audience their own history. If Natalie, you're the historian of burning coal in a way as a whole company, the fact that he's reflecting the history of the actual people in the community and allowing their stories to be told is really important. And I do also remember, David, I, I think you were not in this. There was a reading that we did once with Sam Art Williams that was- um, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was not in it, but I, but I, I saw it, yeah. So this was a man, I think he was based in Atlanta at the time. I could be incorrect, but I know he'd, he'd at least recently done work in Atlanta. And he was an African-American man telling a story about a Holocaust survivor who he had yep. met. And it was just a really interesting mix of voices that we were exploring. And I just thought that was really wonderful at the time. And obviously that's something now that we are as a yep. community and as a world trying to find those voices also, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think that that... Um those sorts of things have carried through into the virtual world with conversations that I always wanted to have those two plays by Dale Orlander Smith that we did last, last year mm -hmm. virtually. Um, so it's interesting how those themes continue to come up. Um, what is, <laughs> this is a Jerry question. Uh, what is oh, no. the purpose of theater? <laughs> <laughs> what is the goal? 
Um, uh, Kate, do you want to take this one first? Sheesh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Natalie, for lobbing it over to me. <laughs> <laughs> what is the purpose of theater? Uh, well, I think we could answer that in a couple of different ways, right? It, the, it should be, it could be to entertain, right? If you think about the Shakespeare Globe and gosh, you know, the attend, the audience used to throw rotten fruit at the actors, you know, I, whether or not they liked them. Uh, so, you know, theater has its roots in entertaining. And obviously I, I always like to be challenged, right? I, I, and don't misunderstand me. I love a great production on Broadway, right? I, in London, when I lived in London, I saw Wicked, th- you know, five times at the Victoria Theater. <laughs> I, I loved it. However, I also like going to the smaller venues and the smaller uh, theater troops and, and really force me to reassess and reevaluate what my belief system is based on the material they're presenting. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that's good. That keeps us on our toes. And uh, it's good to be challenged and not be complacent. So that's Kate, my definition. Kate, was there ever a time that, that a show actually changed your mind about something or really made you reconsider your perspective? Yeah, and, and and to be fair, you know, I'm involved with lots of theater groups, right? Sure. So I, I think I think it depends, but it certainly forced me to ask myself, huh, hmm, maybe I should reevaluate what I thought of whatever the subject matter is, or it could be, well, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective, mm-hmm. right? And uh, just like Elizabeth, the example you were using as well, right, with the the African American and the Holocaust survivor, so perspective is so important and to be open to different perspectives, especially right now, since we're getting so uh, buried in this virtual world, uh, we can sort of go on autopilot. So I think that's an important piece of theater is to keep us honest with ourselves. Yeah, that's nice. Um, Beth, did you have any thoughts on that? Um, I agree with all of that. And um, I mean, obviously, Shakespeare talks about holding up the mirror to society. So we have <laughs> David's pumping his hands. So we have, you know, in the, in the same way that we want entertainment, we also want us to see a reflection of ourselves where we are now or what we can learn and how hopefully we can become better people. But I think there's something about the empathy that you get when you see anyone's story on stage, especially if it's a story of a world that you're not familiar with or a person who you might not encounter in real life normally, or as Kate said, um, being challenged where you're maybe seeing a different perspective and understanding at least the compassion that goes along with it or the reasons behind it so that you can't just block out something you don't understand or believe already. You have to look at it. But I think there really is a, a comment about the empathy that we find in other people. And I think people who aren't exposed to the theater, I always wonder if they are blocking themselves or just not able to have that empathy. And I always wonder if they did have a story related, they could change their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And David, you're the last, last up to bat. Beth, Beth took my answer. No, <laughs> I, because I, I always do start with the idea of Hamlet holding the mirror up to nature. And I think what, what is beautiful about theater is it don't give people an opportunity to look in that mirror and see themselves at their best, at their worst, to laugh, to cry. But ultimately what we do is, Kate, to your point, we entertain people. And that entertainment can shift your worldview or it can reaffirm your worldview. 
And I think our job as artists now is to choose stories that hold the mirror up to nature as it exists, as it truly is, not as we have done for years. And I will say that when I've held that mirror up many times, the people looking back at me look a lot like me. And I think what we are charged with as artists now is really finding that, that community of people that can see themselves on stage. Because Beth just says, people who see, see a story, a relatable story on stage, that's important. That's what teaches empathy. That's where people learn to, to grow or see themselves and feel validated in their existence. And I think theater uh, can do that. And theater in all its forms, whether it be musical theater, legit theater, which is such a weird way to say a non-musical play, right? Um, but I think that all of that is important. And the last 16 months, I keep coming back to it because we suffered a great deal. We lost a lot. And there was a lot going on in society. And it was at a time when theater is typically the, the art, one of the art forms that speaks out in these times of civil strife, of political strife and everything. And we lost our ability to have immediacy in a room with people to hold that mirror up and tell the story. We found it on Zoom, it's very different, but it's interesting to see how we come out of that and what theater is leaving that experience. So um, that's, I'll, I'll stop rambling now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> there is something also, oh, sorry to interrupt, but there's something yeah, also about um, finding those new audiences and the education work, because in yes. New York, I'm also a teaching artist, and I've done a lot of teaching with Burning Coal when the students come up to New York for their theater going weekends, and, and I've done a lot of workshops. And there's something about whether it's a question of just trying to build your audience, but really helping people understand what theater is. If they don't know mm -hmm. what it is as a form and how it can work and how they can be part of it, that is always so important to me. And, and Burning Coal continuing to do that is absolutely important. Also student guides, you know, I, it's a simple thing, but realizing that in a program, you can have a study guide for yeah. any audience member, whether they're someone new to the theater or just new to that particular play and that story, just educating people um, is a way to help grow this art form, you know? And, and I think that's something that people have taken for granted that if you didn't already know what the form was and weren't already engaged with it, then you might have uh, been lost. And now we're trying to say, no, don't be lost, come in. Yeah, I, it's funny. I like, to, I like to think of it as a culture, creating a culture of curiosity, right? It's mm -hmm. like putting that stuff in there allows somebody to be curious about what they've seen mm -hmm. versus the old models where it's like, we're going to do a play, come and see it. And you come in, you get a playbill, the lights go down, you see the play, the lights come up and you walk out. And I think what Burning Coal is able to do, and a lot of theaters since Burning Coal have been able to do is create it. So before the theater, there's an experience of curiosity. What is this? There's, there's information, whether it be on the website or whatever. You come in, it's a community in the lobby. You see the show and you don't immediately leave because you're moved by it or you, you, you've had a great time and you want to talk. You want to meet Beth afterwards and go, oh my God, how did you learn all those lines? You know, you're, you're engaged in it in a way that is not just I've paid for a ticket and I leave. But I think that's something that Burning Coal has done well. I mean, even this podcast, the fact that you are, uh, as a company, yeah. you know, Burning Coal is speaking to its audience and saying, let's look at the history and let's ask questions and let's let's figure out, you know, what we can learn and know and move forward with. It's, yeah. That's wonderful. 
And on that front, is there, is there anything that, um, that you think Beth, that we could, um, something that, that we could do differently in the next 25 years or something that you'd like us, maybe we did it a while ago, but we haven't done it in a while. You want us to bring it back or bring it back better. (laughs) Build it back better. Um, (laughs) to steal a phrase. (laughs) There is, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the current season will be. And I, I know Oh, okay. But I know, <laughs> I know that when we were talking even now about outreach, I feel like if there's a way to engage the community more, whether it's finding the stories from the community, having, you know, workshops or writing programs where the young people in the community or anyone in the community, it could be an older person as well, an adult, um, where they're allowed to bring their stories and those stories are developed as something that the company then shows and shares. So whether it's those people themselves performing their stories or other people and they're writing it. That's something that um, in the work that I do elsewhere, I'm always really trying to make that happen so that people can share their stories and have them expanded. Mm-hmm. I think that would be something. What's yes, that? Oh, sorry. sorry. You're good. No, go yeah. Did you have any advice for those people that are interested in telling their stories um, <gasps> on how to find their viewpoint and, and express that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, if you if the company has an opportunity where people have either workshops or if there's even prompts of some sort, maybe if there's a website or when there's teaching artist work done, uh, or David, if you have a teacher who's a friend of yours and wants to bring something to the classroom, I don't know, you know what your friends teach, yeah. but there is something where um, if the students in their schools, or I don't know if they will be live in school coming up, but if in their educational environment, there is a place for them to write anything or perform anything, even if it's just, uh, you know, we're doing it on Zoom and we're sharing it with a couple people just to get our stories out and hear other people's stories. I think prompts and exposure to someone to be a facilitator would be the easiest way to, to dive into that. And then to have a way to show it, you know, if there's a Saturday morning when a theater is empty and you can bring in the students to share with each other or with their families or friends or with the larger theatrical community. I think that's something that is, is it sounds easy enough as, a, as an idea, but I think yeah. it is easy enough to, to get people excited to want to share. And that's something I've learned from working with students is that if they have not already had a chance to share, they are longing to tell their story somehow to someone somewhere. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, we, we, I think had our, the most submissions that we ever had for our kids write program last year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we do accept middle school and high school scripts. Um, a lot of times they are written uh, to be movies <laughs> instead of plays yeah. we have found. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're trying to work with, with educators on. Um, right. And do I the professional actors can... perform those? Do professional actors perform those scripts? Yeah, we we do hire That's people great. from the community, and yeah, and we pay them to perform. They performed via Zoom, uh, I think, the past two years. So we are very much hoping to bring it back as an in-person program. But I think uh, the idea of prompts or the idea of um, of having someone to work with them from the very beginning of their process, um, instead of right at the end um, when we're just fine tuning scripts Mm. might be interesting to explore. So I think that's a great idea Um, as well as finding ways to encourage playwrights outside of school. 
um, mm-hmm. playwrights of all ages have mm-hmm. stories to share, certainly. Um, David, I know I cut you off earlier. What was no, your no, 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 no. really no, idea? I was, I was, I was, I was reacting to what, what Beth was saying about engaging the community in their stories. I think that that's, there was a, a movement in the 70s, uh, 70, early, mid-70s called Playback Theater, which I am really, really fascinated by. And it was similar to that. It was a themed evening, but uh, Beth would come and she, and, and some of the audience, they would, there's all kinds of things around it, but some of the audience members would share brief experiences based on the theme. And then a, a troupe of four actors would improvise that experience so they could see their experience come to life before them. And then there's a feedback session. Did we get it right? Where we, you know, what was it like? And it, and it creates a real like visceral connection between my story and what happens in this kind of magical box of, uh, of theater. And I think that that's anytime we can do that, you build, you start to build your audience in a way that is, you know, it's not just them coming to see, you know, the man of La Mancha, it's them seeing their own community story, their story or whatever. So that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a really creative idea. <laughs> um, I wish it were mine. It is not. Yeah. <laughs> well, we might steal it too. <laughs> well, and, and you know, there's something something else again in terms of the outreach and the community is the fact that theater and the arts does not have to sit over to one side. And and I hate it when people say, "Oh, it's just not relevant." to what you do every day when in fact i mean companies spend millions of dollars teaching their employees how to tell a story correct right? and that's what and i do we, for a living oh there there we go yeah. right so yeah. that's I, I think it's so so important for people to to realize that theater and art is so intertwined with what we are and what we do regardless of our profession and uh, I, I, I was uh, in a production in third grade. I was the Wicked Witch and Hansel and Gretel. And I still remember my parents saying, well, you were the only one we could hear. And why? Because my, my dad was in set design at, the, at that time for opera. And so he made me practice my lines <laughs> across yeah. the room to, right. as, a, as a third grader to understand how to project my voice. My voice is an instrument. And I never, I never forgot that. So it's, it's relevant regardless of what we do. And I think we have an opportunity to remind people of that, particularly now, right? Mm-hmm. When everyone's yeah. sort of reflecting on what we've gone through and what's coming up. Uh, in terms of our life living with a pandemic. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, um, I think that's all the questions that I have today. Uh, does anyone have any final burning desire to say something about burning coal? <laughs> no, I, I will say, I think it, it is an, it's amazing. And I've told Jerry this, that um, he said what he was going to do and he did it. And here we are 25 years later. And especially saying you're going to do something in a field that is not traditionally uh, accepted at, at levels where you can live and survive for 25 years, right? He came to a market and built a theater, and it's here. It's producing consistently. Its reputation has grown beyond the bounds of Raleigh. And I think that is something to be commended and, and and envied because that doesn't happen in America. I hate to say it. Um, the way the funding measure and the arts are treated in America, Kate, here is put over to the side. 
he did it and he did it in spite of all of the red tape so congrats jerry well, I, yeah, I guess since since Jerry's not here, we can talk about him behind his back a little bit, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he'll just do it later. Um, does anyone have any other thoughts on you know like a first impression of Jerry uh, or that kind of thing? I will just say that it was interesting to me that Jerry was in the first show that I was in. I don't I don't know Rat in the Skull, so I don't know if he was in it as well. But he was, okay, so he was in Love's Labors. And he directs shows, you know, so it's a theater company, which I guess in in some ways people can think it's a vanity project, right? You want to do it so that you can perform. And, you know, I'm sure there's an aspect of that in wanting to still be on stage yourself and and knowing that you can direct this and also produce a season every time it happens every year. But there's also something about knowing somebody's passion. And David, to your point of he said he did it. He said he was going to do it. He did it. It's still happening. Clearly, this is a man and a a company that's passionate about doing the work and continuing the work. And the Mm -hmm. fact that even, you know, I I have come down, I've acted and directed and done teaching work. I haven't, David, seen you in several years, but I feel like if we were in a show tomorrow together, it would just be as if we had seen each other yesterday. So there's something about- home week. Old home week, right. And that's not to, you know, tout anyone's horn, except to say that Jerry has created an environment that people want to continue to be in. And whether it's acting or, you know, producing the the work or being an audience member or all of those things at the same time. But the fact that he's created a kind of family, everybody wants it to continue. And we feel positivity towards its future, I hope, so that there's something about not only just doing it, but also really bringing in a kind of community that helps you sustain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was well said. Uh, Kate, did you have any uh, last words on Burning Coal or Jerry? Uh, just that I still remember our very first fundraiser in my living room. And Jerry, just thank you for what you've given to the community. And here's to the next 25 years. So hats off to you. Yeah, here, cheers. Here. <laughs> All right. Uh, Well, as I hinted at earlier, our 25th anniversary season is now online. Uh, You can see the whole season on there at burningcoal.org. We're starting off with I and You by Lauren Gunderson. Then we'll do The Road to Mecca by Athel Fugard, uh, which we had done once before. So that's going to be a sort of revival. Then we'll do Art by Yasmina Reza, a French playwright, and finishing out the season with The Life of Galileo by Bertolt Brecht, uh, a new adaptation by David Edgar. And thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you again to David Henderson, Elizabeth London. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to our audience. Have a wonderful day, everybody. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Join us for our 25th anniversary season beginning this fall. The main stage subscription includes a ticket to all four main stage plays. The Breakfast Club subscription adds on the second stage series plays and an exclusive Breakfast with the Artistic Director. Become a subscriber today at burningcoal.org or by calling 919-834-4001. Burning Coal's 25th anniversary season is sponsored by The Classical Station. Listen at 89.7 FM or online at theclassicalstation.org.